Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the House That Hinky Built podcast. As always, I am your host, Jackson Frank, and today I'll be joined by Paul Hudrick. We're going to talk about the seasons of Furkan Korkmaz, Danny Green, and Dwight Howard, and seeing as all three of those guys are uh, pending free agents here soon, uh, we'll discuss kind of whether we think they should you know, be Sixers again next year and maybe how they might fit into that, how that could work. Um, and per usual, I am recording this on Spotify Greenroom. Um, so if anything seems a little weird or different than normal podcast, just be cognizant of that. Uh, but we'll talk about those three guys today. And, uh, if you do listen to this as a podcast, please, 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 uh, continue to review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, really means a ton to me. I appreciate all the support I've gotten through these first few weeks. Uh, it's been really awesome to see the interaction. Uh, and please, if there's anything I can do better in any sort of content you'd like to see on these podcasts, by all means, go ahead and uh, give me some constructive criticism. You know, my email is in my Twitter bio. You can also approach me on Twitter. I'm more than happy to discuss with anyone, any of my listeners. Uh, but Paul is here now, so we'll uh, we'll get going pretty shortly. Hey, Paul, how are you doing today? I'm great, Jackson. How are you, man? I'm doing well. How's the, uh, how's the off-season been treating you the last, last few weeks? Uh, crazy. Uh, as, you, <laughs> yeah, as you know, a lot of uh, positive stuff, but crazy stuff in my, uh, in, in my real life. So it's, uh, yeah, very crazy, but very good. How about you? Uh, same. Obviously, since I cover more than the Sixers, it's been uh, still doing some right. work, but it's, it's been nice to have a little, little more freedom and, and a little less regimented schedule. But uh, today we are here to talk about the Sixers. Uh, we're, we've been kind of, I've been kind of working my way from bottom of the roster to the top, and uh, we're kind of we're teetering onto the, the brink of the starters. We'll talk about one starter today, but I wanted to talk about Dwight Howard for Conkorkmas and Danny Green, specifically together in one podcast, because uh, they happen to be pending free agents, all three of them, of course. So we'll the plan today for anyone listening, uh, whether it's live or as a podcast episode, will be to continue to talk about the seasons as I've done with all these different you know guests and players. Uh, give a little grade, but with these guys specifically, we'll talk about whether we think it's worthwhile for the organization to bring them back, what sort of maybe contract or price point might be worth it, uh, and get into that that specifically. But um, I do want to kick things off with Dwight Howard today. Um, Dwight, you know, came in last year was a you know, he, he had a very nice year uh, with the Lakers and kind of a resurgence, and then the, the Sixers uh, kind of brought both him and Danny Green over to try and pursue a championship. Uh, Paul, what did you make of Dwight's uh, Dwight's first year as a Sixer? I would say it's uneven um, in the sense that I think you know the signing I think was met with mixed 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 reactions of you know kind of ranging from oh wow he makes a lot of sense as a guy that can back up Joel Embiid and just give you those whatever you know fifteen to twenty minutes a night or when Joel Embiid is out of the lineup can you know step in and, and do that and then some other people just skeptical and maybe. Not realizing that, you know, to your point, that he was pretty darn good with the Lakers last year and helped them out a lot. It's to me, it's you know, when the playoffs started, that's when you kind of started to see the flaws and his limitations, and what that's what really stood out to me, and especially with this team specifically, and with you know Ben Simmons and with Matisse Thybul, we talked about that really all season long. That trio offensively just really just not working out. Uh, we have three guys who are just really not perimeter threats at least from a shooting perspective um, and really how that clogged things up and how that clogged the lane, you know, whether it was, you know, uh, Dwight, uh, you know, w- when he played in lineups without Ben Simmons, without Matisse Thibel, he was better. Or if he played in lineups, maybe just Ben Simmons, it was a little better. But I thought in the playoffs, 
it really stood out. Uh, you know, that, and then also, he's a very aggressive player. He has that reputation. He has a reputation for getting called for technical fouls, has a reputation for getting called for, for common fouls. Um, you know, a lot of moving screen calls, um, you know, lots of kind of maybe stuff that, you know, to some other guys might be ticky tack. And, but with Dwight, I mean, he's just, he's got that reputation. So referees are already looking out for him. So I think that really stood out as well. And in the playoffs, I mean, to me, Jackson, it was like the, the last three games of that Atlanta series, I wouldn't have played him. Uh, I, I would have tried to use Ben Simmons at the five. And not only because I think perhaps it would have maybe helped Ben Simmons to get going more as a screener, roller, offensive rebounder, just surround him with shooting. But then I just thought, I thought Dwight Howard just wasn't very good uh, throughout that Atlanta series. I just I didn't think he made a positive enough impact. And, and you know, the, the advanced stuff weighs, you know, supports that. Um, you know, when you just look at simple plus minus, I mean, he was a minus throughout most of the playoffs. He, he was not making a positive impact when he was on the floor. Um, so yeah, so it, it, but I don't want to take away from the fact that during the regular season, he was good for them at times, at times, very good for them. And I think from a leadership standpoint, you know, the way he's matured, you know, the impact he made for the Lakers and him winning a championship and I think mentally he came into this in a really good place. I think he was a positive influence in the locker room. And that's not a small thing when you consider what this team has kind of been through with Joel Embiid and with Ben Simmons and with some of the other guys who have come in through, uh, who have come through here. It's no small thing. And I know we're going to touch on Danny Green as well, but Dwight and Danny, the impact they made on a youngish team in the locker room, you can't discount that either. So that's why to me it's, it's uneven because there were a lot of positives. He made a lot of, positive impacts in a lot of ways but like I said in the playoffs I just thought he hurt them more than he helped them so that's to me it's I would say he's uneven yeah I think uneven is a great way to phrase it and I mean he he probably he he was probably their best you know backup five you know during the drill and be there in terms of like you know in terms of how you allocated resources of course Al Horford despite <laughs> all of Al Horford's limitations uh, in his one year as a sixer he was a better player than Danny Green the di- or not Danny Green excuse me Dwight Howard the difference is he, he was making far more money that's not Al's <laughs> fault but in terms of how you you build out a roster it didn't make sense to to put that much money into a backup five so yeah I think Dwight was a was a very nice piece or player uh, in the regular season um he was, I mean, honestly, at times in that bench unit, his offensive rebound and putback ability was the most consistent source of offense. Um, sometimes that kind of, there's a trade-off. Sometimes the transition defense was poor because Dwight was you know, pursuing rebounds, but he was empowered to do that because, I mean, his offense, his numbers, his rebounding numbers this year were off the charts. Uh, he averaged 8.4 rebounds per game in uh, 17 <laughs> minutes per game, uh, including 2.8 on the offensive glass there. Uh, per 36 minutes, that comes out to be a pretty astronomical number of 17.5, including 5.7 on the offensive glass. Uh, and Dwight's just a monstrous rebounder, especially kind of timing things. You know, he knows where how to track the ball and whatnot. Um, but yeah, it, but the issue was, you know, they they needed someone who could space the floor better, honestly, um, at, at times, like because because of the fact that you ideally you want one of Ben or Joel out there at all times, uh, and Doc didn't always prescribe that idea. Um, he liked to play Ben and Joel a lot together, um, but it was also made tougher by the fact that you know you're not going to play you're not going to play Joel and, and and Dwight out there together because it just doesn't make sense, um, and you can't really play Dwight and Ben out there a lot because of just how how cramped that floor spacing is. So that was tough. Not really Dwight's fault. I think I've talked on previous podcasts and streams and whatnot about the fact that I think one of the major missteps of Daryl Morey's first year uh, was not finding a 
another whether it was another center um once you know Tony Bradley and Vincent Poirier were shipped off or finding one that you know could space the floor uh to maybe to make it a little easier in the non-Juel minutes when Ben's out there um that was that was tough too but but Dwight had some really nice moments I agree though in the playoffs um largely I mean the two games I think he was good was I want to say game five of the Washington series when he had 12 points uh eight of ten from the free throw line eight rebounds a couple of assists three blocks and then uh, game two of the Hawks series when he and Shake Milton and kind of that entire bench unit um, really kind of helped propel the Sixers to a to a must win victory there. Um, but other than that, yeah, he was he was not good, uh, just you know and, and whatnot. And so I, I definitely agree that um, he shouldn't have played down the stretch of that series, uh, and especially in those games, kind of the last three or four games when when Ben was really struggling, the team needed to do something to kind of get its its second best player going. Uh, and, you know, obviously a lot of Ben deserves a lot of, you know, responsibility for his own struggles, but it wasn't helped by the fact that I think he, he the usage never really changed in a way to change that might have been to to bench Dwight Howard and, and let Ben play the five. Uh, and that's not to say Ben's optimal role is the five, but I think I would have liked to see more Ben at the five in key in key matchups as a, as the backup five. Uh, and I, and at the ex, I guess at the expense of Dwight, maybe it's too harsh of a way to phrase it. Um, but I think that would have been, I think, a little more. A little more rigidity and um, discretion in the, in the Dwight minutes would have been better. That's not so much Dwight's fault. He just is a limited player. Um, but that's that's one thing I think is he he's more of a, a matchup dependent backup five than maybe the you know night in night out backup five that he was treated as. Um, and you saw his limitations, especially in the playoffs against against good teams. And even less, I mean, the Wizards were a playoff team, but they were still a lesser team. And Dwight had his struggles in that and- series as well. Right, and we even saw, I mean, you know, just with Dwight specifically, we saw that happen when he was with the Lakers, too. I mean, he was kind of played off the floor in the, in, in, in the finals with, with Miami. When Miami went small and had Bam at the five, you, you, couldn't put, you couldn't play Dwight Howard in those situations. So, I mean, it's not like this. there was no history of it. You know what I mean? There, <laughs> there was, we, we saw it. We saw it last season. So, um, yeah, and I, I do think at times Doc just, uh, he was just really insistent and stubborn on wanting to play Dwight and – I think that's one of you know uh, I give Doc Rivers a lot of credit for a lot of really positive things he did with this basketball team. You have to give him a ton of credit. This was a team that was you know largely disappointed the year before he got here, became the number one seed, um, and he did you know he got the most out of Tobias Harris, and he, he did a lot of really positive things. But um, the lineups and one of those things being that he just the stubbornness of always wanting to play <laughs> Dwight Howard no matter the circumstance. Um, I think that's, you know, not fully what cost them, obviously. There's a a lot of contributing factors as to why they lost, but um, I think that was a a big part of it. Yeah, I think that you said it, Doc's insistence in stubbornness, uh, that the second half of that could have been, (laughs) could have been applied to an array of things that that happened in the playoffs. Like I, (laughs) I talked with, with Daniel Unger of Liberty Ballers on the previous uh, episode, we talked about Shake Milton. Uh, and part of that too was we talked about Doc's insistence on playing Shake uh, minutes, uh, which is not Shake's fault. It's not Dwight's fault, but it's just the fact of the matter is neither one of those guys were were deserving of, of big minutes in, in Game Seven of a second round series. So right, yeah, the, yeah, and I'll we'll, I'll get into a big episode about Doc and, and whatnot at some point. But uh, yeah, I think when you're the Sixers, you know, there you have to view a lot of these things through a a playoff heavy lens because, like, yeah, they had a great regular season. It was it was a it was a welcomed turn for the franchise after a pretty down um, 2019-20. But when you have an MVP candidate in his prime, most of the analysis and kind of the the way you assess a season, whether it's as an organization or as individual players, is going to 
be heavily skewed toward the playoffs because the goal is to win a title. Um, and so that's, you know, so that's kind of how I view those things. But yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned some of the leadership there with Dwight. I think he was certainly someone who Joel benefited from um, because Dwight's been there, you know, in terms of, you know, being an MVP level player who is heavily scrutinized and has maybe some, I don't know, not the best, maybe like overly scrutinized for some of the way he carries himself um, when it hasn't always produced the, the end goal, the, the top end goal of winning. Um, or I shouldn't say the top, I should say the, the highest peak of winning would be the best way to phrase it there. And so I think, you know, that, with Dwight's experience there, that definitely helped Joel to an extent. Um, Dwight loved the fans. Like, that was one of my favorite things this year is when Dwight yeah. would get going, uh, especially when the fans got back into, into Wells Fargo. Uh, you could really tell he liked that. Uh, Dwight's, uh, his, his, uh, his fascination, uh, with, with the Frosties was, was hilarious. <laughs> Um, what do you say? He was at one great point with that he, us that, too. Did, he yeah, was so, great he was with so media. fun all year. Yeah, he, he which is so funny. It's so funny yeah. because like that he had such a reputation, obviously, as, as not being that guy. Um, but he was great with us. I mean, all, all year long, and he was, and, and not just yes, he was a lot of fun, and like he, you know, he was funny and you know, was entertaining. But even at times when like when there was negative stuff, he he was good. He was good with you know, not necessarily. I don't want to say calling guys acts. That's not the right way to put it, but just he was honest with his assessments of the team and what he thought and his own play. And so, yeah, I mean, he was, he, he was, he was great from, from an off off court standpoint, you, he was great. Like he, you could not have asked for a better player as far as the locker room interaction with fans, interaction with media. Um, he, he was, he was great in, in all those capacities. Absolutely. What was that one thing he said? Did he say one thing about Frosty's one time where he said that like, if if the if the Sixers miss two free throws, the fans should get. Fr- I can't remember. There's something something where where Dwight just wanted more free frosty, despite despite <laughs> the fact that a frosty is a dollar sixty five, and, and Dwight has made double oh, digit made, millions you know of his what? career. If he made, I think it was if he made a three, he wanted it. He wanted frosty. Okay, okay. Oh yes, I that's think what it was. So. I could yes. be wrong, I think, but yeah, I think it was a late season regular, <laughs> one of those late yeah. season regular season games when the Sixers were kind of set in their ways in terms of seeding and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, I think you know. Dwight, this is now two straight stops for Dwight where, by all accounts, he's been great as a locker room guy. You know, he was obviously very good in L.A. and great here, um, even though the outcomes were a little different in terms of kind of how the season resulted. But, uh, yeah, I, so I think for me, you know, when I come, when I want to give Dwight a letter grade, I tend to kind of settle on a B, I think, is where I go. Um, useful in the regular season, had his struggles in the postseason, of course, some of which were, you know, his own limitations, some of which were, you know, the fact that Dwight or not Dwight Doc really wanted to play him, um, you know, sometimes like with bench players, it gets to a point where it's not really the bench player's fault. Like if a, if a, if a coach keeps sending a guy out there and you know what he can do and what he can't do and, and this in this matchup or situation demands that he be someone he isn't, you can't really blame the player for that. So if you had to give Dwight a grade, where would you kind of fall on that on that scale? Probably uh, maybe a B minus. Um Maybe even maybe even a C plus. I mean, just just because, like you said, just I, the the playoffs, everything is so weighted in the playoffs, and then that's that's where his struggles showed up. Um, but to your point, I, I, yeah, I mean, Doc kind of, you know, maybe this is a little harsh to say, but Doc kind of set him up to fail because he maybe put him in situations that weren't optimal for him, um, and, and maybe he could have looked to do something else. And that's not that's not Dwight's fault. That's you know, Dwight can only do what he can do, uh, and. He, you know, he, he did that. He, he hit the offensive glass hard. Like, you you know, you already talked about off the top, you know, historically good rebounding numbers, uh, not only in the regular season, but, yeah, in the playoffs too when he got his moments. Um, and, he, you know, he added that 
maybe that element of because you look and it, this isn't a knock on the Sixers or as a team, but like you do need that uh, that tough like you, that edge and like you see it like even in the finals like a guy like a PJ Tucker or a guy like a Jay Crowder like you need those guys who play with that little bit of an edge you, that nastiness like you need that that's not that's not like a like a you know a throwaway thing that's something that's tangible you see it on the court and I think. Dwight kind of fit that role at times, and I think that's part, not to defend Doc for playing him maybe when he shouldn't have, but I think that's part of what Doc was thinking a lot of times when playing him, is that he just he felt like he needed that that edge or that toughness. Um, and, you know, but I, and yeah, sure, Dwight fit that, but I also think that uh, sacrificing the the fit on the floor and sacrificing those, you know, kind of, mismatching lineups was probably not worth having that toughness element in there. Um, so yeah, I, I would say B minus bordering on a C plus for me. Yeah, I think, I think that's fair. It's always, it's always tough when you evaluate players, especially ones who have been in the league for a while. Like where do you, where are you trying to fall? Like, yes, this is just kind of the player they are now. Like, I don't want to, you know, at some point, like you don't, you don't want to, you can't just like knock a guy in terms of your evaluation for what he can and can't do when a guy is, you know, Four, five, twelve, however many years in the playoffs or right. in his career, but yeah, I think I think that's fair. I think I was kind of in the B minus B range. Maybe you were half a grade lower. So I think generally speaking, we're in the in the same boat. Um, but Dwight is a free agent, of course, um, or will be a free agent. Excuse me, when the league year ends. Um, we're still season is still happening. Want to be uh, technically correct in my uh, in my my language here? But um, how do you feel about the prospect of bringing Dwight back? Because personally, I as much as much as we've been pretty complimentary of him, I just think they need a different. If, if the roster is currently, if the roster remains similar to how it is now with, with their core being Joel, Ben, and, Ben, and Tobias, which it, it could look a lot different. I mean, there's no, we're not going to dart, we're not going to beat around the idea of the fact that Ben Simmons could be in a different city come, come the fall. Um, but as currently constructed, I think they need a more of a stretch five ideal or just someone who maybe has a little bit of like, like kind of self-creation, but like the one of the things Tony Bradley did so well, like you could dump the ball into the post a couple of times and you give you that soft hook or maybe that drop step or whatever. And I didn't, Dwight just didn't have that. So I think someone you can rely on a little bit to score beyond, you know, the lobs uh, or the putbacks. And even then like Dwight had, Dwight has kind of weird hands. Uh, he missed a lot of lobs at times or missed offensive rebounds. So I think some sort of big man with a little more ability to score and not be so, not be set up so often to score by everyone else um, would help. So where do you land on kind of, you know, Dwight in terms of maybe coming back to Philadelphia next season? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much on the same page as you with that. Um, it's, he played, I mean, he was here on the minimum. Uh, if they want to bring him back for the minimum, I guess I don't have a problem with that. But at the same time, yeah, to your point, they, they need some type of stretch or creation element from that backup five, especially if they're planning to bring Ben Simmons back and the team's going to stay similarly constructed to what it is now. Um, yeah. I mean, but to me, I, just to get that out of the way, like to me, Joel Embiid is safe and nobody else is uh, literally. <laughs> yeah. That's how I feel about it. I think I could see anybody uh, being available on a trade other than Joel Embiid for this team. Um, just the way Daryl Morey operates and just the way this team is, I, I could totally see that. But yeah, to get back to Dwight, um, maybe you don't want to sign him to the minimum because you don't want to tempt Doc Rivers to play him. Uh, too much, and so maybe Maury, from that standpoint, says, ah, maybe we don't want to even tempt fate there. And it's funny, you bring up Tony Bradley, and I don't know what his market's going to look like, but man, I, I would not be opposed to him coming back here, uh, whether it's, you know, with, with the, the mid-level or, you know, somehow with you know, incorporating 
the trade exception or whatever, however you get that done, I would not be opposed to, the, to him coming back. Because I think you saw when, when Joel Embiid was out and Tony Bradley played really well during that stretch, Tony Bradley was starting. He was playing with Ben Simmons, and Dwight Howard was playing with the second unit because Dwight, Doc Rivers acknowledged that Dwight Howard was better with that second unit and Tony Bradley was better with the starters. And so I would not at all be opposed to see him coming back and playing with, you know, if Ben Simmons is here, because he's had success playing with Ben Simmons. And I think part of it is to your point. Yeah. Like he, he can do that little drop step hook shot. He's got pretty soft hands and pretty, like, you know, mm-hmm. the, you know, the counter joy, he's got soft hands, he's, you know, <laughs> he's really an analytics kind of darling with like, you know, true shooting percentage and all that. Like he's got really <laughs> good hands around the rim, really good touch. And not only that, when he was with Utah, we didn't see it here, but he was trying to expand his game a little bit. He was trying to incorporate more threes and stretch his game out a little bit. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that he could work on that this offseason and perhaps come in here and shoot, I don't know, like, you know, slightly below league average from three, which could be quite useful, Um, especially, again, if Ben Simmons is still here and still, you know, running with the second unit and, and Tony Bradley could be the backup center. I could certainly see that being a viable option. Uh, so, but if let's just say theoretically they bring back Dwight Howard on the minimum, I still want to see something uh, that is, you know, whether it's, you know, throw a name out there. It's not, you know, whatever name it is, it's not going to be a sexy name, but like a Mike Muscala that maybe you could also <laughs> bring it on the minimum to help, you know, for when those matchups occur, when it just doesn't look right with Dwight Howard, in an Atlanta series, maybe you can go to a Mike Muscala who could hit a wide open three and stretch the floor a little bit and help out Ben Simmons. So, yeah, I, I mean, if it were me, I probably would not. I would opt to not bring back Dwight Howard and, and look for a different option. Uh, but I could also see a world where maybe Doc Rivers and Daryl Morey decide, hey, what does it hurt to bring back Dwight on the minimum? Because there are matchups where maybe he is a, a better one. But maybe you you have a conversation with Dwight where it's like, listen – your role last year is not going to look the same as it was this year. It, it's going to look different. We're going to bring in another guy to kind of fill that other void of, you know, filling kind of where you where you have gaps. We're going to have that guy fill it in. And the other thing is I don't want to totally rule out the idea that, like, Paul Reed could fight for minutes um, mm-hmm. as a backup five. I know, you know, Doc was very insistent that he didn't feel Paul Reed was ready. But there's clearly skill there. There's clearly a talent level there with Paul Reed. And he does, you know – check some of those boxes we're talking about when we're talking about a guy who can create a little bit, can, you know, hit an outside shot, can even hit a mid-range shot from time to time. Uh, if he can maybe be a little bit more consistent and really understand the Sixers' concepts and really get into the, de- you know, the defensive philosophies and really be more um, more knowledgeable in that regard and more, uh, more apt, you know, more, um, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for here, just show more of an understanding of what they're looking for on the defensive end of the floor from a philosophy and strategy standpoint. I, maybe Paul Reed could be a, a factor. So, yeah, you want to bring Dwight Howard back, sure. But I also think if you're going to do that, you need to give Paul Reed a good, hard, long, hard look, and you need to bring in another veteran minimum guy who can perhaps stretch the floor. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that would be quite – I would get a kick out of uh, Tyrese Maxey and Mike Muscala uh, bench lineup, just the fact that, that Mike Muscala is the reason is the reason <laughs> that uh, Tyrese Maxey is a sixer. But, but, yeah, I think – yeah, and I think also what helps too is the fact that, um, you know, Mike Mike Scott's contract is up. They'll have kind of that MLE again to maybe – like maybe if they want to go with Dwight as the third center on a veteran's minimum and then try and sign 
um, you know, a stretch five or someone who can space the floor a little better or whatever it is, it kind of is your backup five with, with some of the MLE there, that would help too. Um, so yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll have t- plenty of time to talk about free agency, of course, too. Um, a lot of different, different directions Sixers can go, but, but yeah, I think that's, that's all pretty, pretty reasonable. Um, I, for me with Dwight, yeah, it's, it's a, it's as a matchup dependent center. If he comes back, he can't be your, your primary guy there. And yeah, I, like I had Tom West on a couple episodes ago and we talked about kind of what Paul Reed could do to, you know, maybe solidify himself or kind of snag a, a backup five role because yeah, he didn't shoot well from, th- I don't think he made a three in the NBA, um, but shot the ball very well from three in G league in the G league uh, in the bubble there. So uh, yeah, definitely some potential with Paul Reed, of course, but um, I do want to shift gears now to talk about Furkan Korkmaz, the, the last of the bench unit here before uh, everything is dominated by the Sixers starting five uh, moving forward. Um, but to do that, I do want to bring on Serge Kumas, uh, who is uh, kind of, I guess, in terms of kind of the Sixers media circle, um, the the guy to talk about Furkan Korkmaz. Um, so we will do that here uh, in just a second. Hey, Serge, how are you doing today? Hey, guys, how are you? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Um, so... Obviously, um, you know, Furkan is the, is, the na- is the man of the hour now currently. Um, the last of kind of the, the five different uh, f- five different bench uh, perimeter players that got, got significant rotation minutes throughout the year for the Sixers. Um, we can all kind of discuss them in kind of a roundtable type, you know, back and forth. But uh, I do want to defer to you initially, Serge. What did you make of, of Furkan's uh, fourth year as a Sixer? Yeah, for sure. Um you know, let's face it, I think his coming out season was definitely last season, the nineteen twenty season that got cut off uh, due to COVID and, and whatnot. I think last year he really showed um, that he belongs in the NBA. Um, this year was also uh, kind of similar to what was going on with last year with Furkan. Um, his numbers kind of dropped. If I'm looking at his numbers now, he shot 40% last year from three, and this year it went down to 37%. So um, kind of fell in terms of his percentage. But um, for the most part, a reliable guy coming off the bench. Um, he's not going to give you 20 coming off the bench, but he's definitely going to give you maybe like um, a spark per se. So maybe like eight, nine points, uh, maybe 11 points off the bench. So he's definitely a spark coming off the bench um, in terms of that. So I think he had a, he had a pretty good season. Um, I don't think he showed enough in the playoffs per se, especially in the second round against the Hawks, especially being a starter for the injured Danny Green. So I think he had a good season, not a great season, but I think last year was definitely better, but it wasn't that bad this year, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, you might, yeah, definitely regular season was better last season. Um, you're just kind of comparing some of the numbers, as you mentioned, 40% from three last year, 37.5%. Um, his true shooting last year was in the regular season, 57.9. This year down to 54.4. Um, he did, I think he was bad. I want to say an ankle in, injury the first few games of the year before he took it some time off. Um, and his numbers weren't very good those first three games. And then and maybe one or two other, you know, I think he had a couple of other ankle injuries or uh, things that kind of sideline him occasionally, um, you know, late in the year. But um, the thing I was impressed by is I thought Furcon was much better in the playoffs this year than last year. Um, he was basically played off the floor against the Celtics. Um, and that was a team on the Sixers that was a worse, was worse with less shooting. Um, and so I think the fact that he was able to maintain a rotation spot. Now, different coaches, of course, between Doc and Brett Brown, um, but that's one thing I was impressed by, even though he struggled a little bit at times in the playoffs this year, I did think he was better, uh, in just terms of being, being a viable rotation player. Now, as you mentioned, he started the last few games of the, of the season with Danny Green out with that calf strain, unfortunately. Um, but that's the one thing I did want to note is I thought last year he really struggled in the playoffs and this year, while 
by no means was he some, you know, super, super reliable floor spacer. Like, he only shot 31.8% from three in the playoffs, which is which is not what you want from a guy whose main utility is kind of the off-ball floor spacer, but um, was more impressed this year than last year um, in the playoffs. Like, last year he only scored three points in four games, played 40 minutes, um, didn't make a shot from the field, um, only, only hit three free throws in those four games. So um, much better step up. And the other thing I liked from Furcon this year, was I thought he took a really big step forward defensively um, with just kind of his movement and ability to change directions, um, playing the passing lanes better. Um, Paul, what did you make of kind of Furkan's year, particularly his defense that I thought uh, kind of grew grew to allow him to be a, a little more versatile player overall? That's the first thing I was going to talk about with Furkan with defense because, um, you know, during the Brett Brown era, it, I, it there's no – nice way to put it he was he was pretty much a liability on that end like you said the Celtics series really just got played off the floor when you're talking about you know guys like Jalen Brown Jason Tatum they were they were hunting them down uh they were hunting down the matchup uh you saw a lot less of that this year you saw a lot less teams just hunting him down I mean of course at times because listen I mean he's not he's not Matisse Thibel it's just that's not he's not you know a great great defender but to his credit he has he's improved significantly on that end to the point where um, he can be reliable to, you know, to where teams aren't hunting him on a nightly basis. Um, and I think the one element that he added here with the Sixers that, um, you know, the Sixers, for whatever reason, and it's, it's dating back to the Brett Brown era and even carried over um, this year, is this weird thing where guys are kind of reluctant to shoot. Like, they just aren't – we <laughs> saw it with Seth Curry throughout the season. Obviously, postseason, he was much better in that regard. But throughout the regular season, so many times – Seth Curry would pass up open to semi-open threes. That was that has never been an issue with Furkan Korkmaz. <laughs> Furkan Korkmaz is an extremely confident player, extremely confident shooter, and the Sixers have needed that. They haven't had enough guys who just can come in off the bench and are just ready to fire. And that's the one element I think he's really added. Um, you know, to Serge's point, yeah, you know, he was more efficient last season um, and had some bigger games. You know, I. I think about the there was literally like three or four games last year where his shooting changed the game for the Sixers like he he kind of almost borderline won them the game the only one I could think of this year is that game in Tampa against the Raptors where um Doc gave him the start and he scored like I think think he hit like four threes in the first quarter and the Sixers (laughs) just kind of never relinquished the Mm -hmm. lead like that was game-changing shooting so I think at times he's flashed the ability to have that um, yeah, and the playoffs were a disappointment. He he did not shoot well enough. Um, you know he you know and I it hurt him and it hurt the team that he just couldn't. You know when he started those games for Danny, he could have really given them a big boost by hitting some some open looks that he got, and he just didn't cash in. So yeah, I, I mean it, it's kind of like Dwight in a sense where it's uneven to me. I mean that that's the best way to put it. I think. Uh, at, and the other thing I don't want to get lost in the shuffle is. Furk is still really young. I mean, this is he's mm-hmm. 23 years old. He'll be, uh, or I, I think he'll be 24 this month. Uh, so he's still a young guy. So th- there's still plenty of room for improvement. I think he still can add a little something off the bounce too. Uh, we've mm-hmm. seen it at times, you know, him, him kind of having a pretty good feel in the pick and roll, um, especially with Joel Embiid. Actually, at times, I thought him they they show a little bit of chemistry in the pick and roll, pick and pop game. So. Yeah, I, I I would say that Furkan is still kind of an ascending player, so that's 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 the way I kind of look at him overall. Yeah, sir. Do you want to add anything else, um, kind of about about him on either end or this season or his growth over his four years um, in Philadelphia? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
Jackson, Paul, you guys both hit on it, though, his, his ability on the, on the defensive end. Um, just the passing lanes and how he's able to read them. Um, you know, I know Furkan is, is the most mm-hmm. athletic person, but he, he's an athlete. He's a sand duck champion when he was playing in Turkey, and he had, kind of showed flashes of that with his dunking ability um, here, here in the NBA. So, you know, just the ability to read passing lanes, um, just to get right up onto the, uh, onto the player and try to take the ball from them, I think he really improved in that regard. And... Um, yeah, again, you know, in the playoffs against Atlanta, I think he had only one good game. That was game four when he had 14 points. I think he had eight points in the first quarter. Um, you know, started that game, started hot. I think he made two or three threes in a row in the first quarter. Um, but for the most part, uh, a disappointment against Atlanta. But I think that, like Paul said, he's he's young. He's turning 24 in, I think, a week or two this month. So um, he still has growth in terms of his uh, career in the NBA. Um, so... This isn't the final package. I think there's still more to come before Concord Moss. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and yeah, uh, he it's his golden birthday year, actually. He turns 24 on July 24th. So everyone uh, listening to this streamer podcast, make sure to, <laughs> to give Furkan his love in a couple of weeks here. Um, but yeah, I think I think that, that last point that both Paul and Serge hit on is the growth. Like, I mean, Furkan, his first couple of years in Philadelphia was not a very good player. Um, he even, like, I know at one point he even requested a trade um, early in the season in the second year. Um Mentioned it in his, his, his exit interview of that second year, um, which is one of my favorite things of any Philadelphia uh, athlete is the fact that he, he brought that up. Um, but you mentioned, too, that like the passing line growth, like his steal rate almost doubled this year. Um, last year, he was at 1.3%. Steal rate this year was at 2.2%. Um, just played those lanes better. Um, and I think the growth is important. Yeah, like, I mean, he – and Furkan's a guy who, like, once a couple of threes or a three falls for him – everything else kind of opens up a little more. Like he gets more confident. He's a little more zippy in his movement off the ball and kind of his, maybe those dribble handoff actions he runs with guys. Like he had a really nice chemistry with Ben Simmons this year that developed. Um, I know the two of them talked about it and Ben, Ben talked about liking to play with Furkan. Um, and so I, like I was impressed with Furkan's year. I know like it wasn't, wasn't great, but he's, I mean, he's a legit, a six, seven shooter. Who's never, never shy about shooting the ball and moves pretty well for his size. Now, um, you know, I wouldn't say he's like some huge plus offensively, but like, I don't, I don't worry a ton about him. Like, I mean, he can, he's just fine. Um, and, that, and that's useful for a guy with such a quick trigger and a versatile trigger, um, you know, can shoot spot outs, has that pump fake. Like he has probably beyond, beyond Joel Embiid has the best shot fake into drawing fouls on the team. Um, the amount of times over the last couple of years, he's drawn three, three shot fouls has been pretty impressive. So, um, but yeah, that growth is important. And, you know, I, I think he's a, he's a rotation player. Um, he's a six, seven, you know, good shooter. Um, who is is fine or passable defensively? And you don't, you don't. I mean, those guys aren't aren't just everywhere in the NBA. You have maybe the maybe guys who are a little better shooters, but a little smaller, maybe a little easier easier to exploit defensively, and or maybe you have the bigger shooters who can't move as well and things like that. So um, for me, when I kind of think about grading his season, I settle on a probably a, a B minus to a B. Um, where where are the two of you kind of land on, on that scale? And either one of you can kind of kick things off here in terms of kind of your your grade for him. Uh, yeah, Jackson, I'm right with you with a B minus. I think I think it's a solid B minus. Um, in terms of you know, I think last I think this year was a bit of a continuation of last year with Furcon. So I don't think he outrageously improved, but there definitely wasn't, he definitely didn't digress. So I think he stayed consistent in terms of most, you know, in terms of his shooting ability, of course, his defense improved and that was clear as day. I think one thing guys is that one thing I didn't see from Furcon his rookie year or sophomore year was in his, in terms of his ball handling, right? So this year and last year we saw him bringing the ball up, kind of 
facilitating the uh, the offense to a certain extent, giving guys passes for lobs and things of that nature. So watching Furkan from his first year as a rookie to now, I never thought he'd handle the ball in the NBA. Just coming from Europe to the NBA, I thought he would just come off screens and take mm-hmm. shots when he had it. Um, but yeah, uh, I would say a solid B minus. He kind of continued what he was doing last year. Uh, not a drastic improvement, but I think he stayed consistent for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I'd probably go actually a B plus. Only for me, it's because of the defense. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just think he's taken. I, I thought he took a big leap um, from last year to this year defensively. Yeah, I, I mean he you know had some bigger games last year, but I think the team was built differently last year too. And obviously, like uh, like you've already said, Jackson, new coaching staff and all that. So he was used a little differently. It was it was you know a little bit of a different role because of the players they had and some of the players who emerged and, you know, th- like everything like that. So, um, but I think just like, yeah, just based off the defensive improvement, uh, because I, if I'm being honest, uh, Serge, you talk about, you, you didn't think he'd ever be able to, you know, maybe create and do some things off the dribble. I never thought he would ever be a passable <laughs> NBA defender. I really didn't. After watching him the first couple of years, I thought he was just going to, he was so limited, you know, as far as his lateral quickness, I didn't think he'd ever be good enough, but, um, to his credit, he's worked on it, I think, physically, and then also, I think, mentally. I think he's getting – he's just gotten smarter with, you know, in, in understanding his limitations and knowing he's not the quickest guy. So, you know, just beating guys, trying to beat guys to spots, drawing charges, uh, like you guys have already mentioned with the passing lanes. You, he's got a lot of length. Uh, he's a long dude, so, you know, he's used that to his advantage. And, again, just, you know, I'm sure it's part of that is film study and, and seeing tendencies and, and all that, I think – He's just really gotten so much better defensively that I, I think I think I'm going to go with a B plus. Yeah, I think that's that's certainly reasonable too. And uh, in terms of kind of you know obviously now the, the question is for cons of free agent signed a two year deal. Um, I I don't know what exactly his market will be. Like I think he'll have some suitors. Honestly, like I mean he's a six seven shooter who can who is a passable defensive. Like those guys aren't just like some super easy easy player to find or archetype to find. Um, I'm not saying he's going to make like 12 million a year or anything like that, but, um, like I think for the right price and I, I want to say like maybe the five to, maybe this is too much, like five to six million range for a couple of years, like given the growth he showed, like, I think, I think there's a little more he can do with the ball in his hands. Like he, he's a pretty interesting lob passer. He can do some things in the pick and rolls in dribble handoff game as a passer. Like, I think he's a pretty useful and versatile offensive player. Um, and that's why I'd be willing to give him, you know, maybe a, a two year, $12 million deal or 10 Ten million, like I don't want to. I don't want to give him like two years, sixteen. I think that's. I think you're kind of getting a little too, too rash there. But um, like I think there's certainly kind of a, a price point for him to come back. And I maybe I don't know exactly where the Sixers stand in terms of what they can offer him. Um, like I do think they have his bird rights, if I recall. Um, but but I think he's a guy worth coming, come, you know, retaining it for the for the right price. And that would be to me the kind of twelve to thirteen is kind of the upper limit there because I think there is more growth from it as. As we've all mentioned, he's shown some pretty impressive strides. Uh, he still is only 24 runs for next season, you know, 24 in a couple of months, um, and 24 plus a couple months, I should say. Um, so, where, Serge, where do you kind of stand on maybe kind of what the Sixers should do in terms of approaching his free agency coming up here? Yeah, Jackson, I think you're right on the the range of where his contract can be, maybe two-year, $10 million. Uh, Don't want to go above, I think, to 13 or 14, like you said. Um but again, yeah, I think Furkan is an interesting player. Like we've mentioned, he has the length uh, to play on the defensive end. He's definitely a shooter. He's not afraid to shoot the ball. Always has the green light to shoot the three and, and also to drive as well. So um, I'm not sure what the Sixers' plans are, per se, of, of bringing him back. Uh, Furkan said multiple times um, 
you know, when the season came to an end and also back in April before the post before the playoffs started that he wanted to come back to Philly. He considers Philly home, um, which was actually a huge thing for him because I remember speaking to him. Mm-hmm. I think he's like second or third game in the NBA. And he's like, oh, this place is so strange to me. You know, the, uh, my teammates make jokes. I don't get half the jokes, which makes sense. The whole culture shock of coming um, from overseas to the, to the States to play in the NBA is definitely a big jump for him. But, um, you know, he loves Philly, loves the city. And also, um, you know, being a Turkish American myself, uh, he's a big Turkish community here in South Jersey. So he's always here mm-hmm. shopping at the local Turkish marts and stuff. So, you know, going back to the point, I hope the Sixers bring him back. Um, but I, I do think that. Oh. Um, he's an interesting player, like I said. So um, the two year 10 million could definitely work for him, I think. Um, so, I, you know, again, I hope to see him in Philly, but I wouldn't be surprised, surprised if he goes elsewhere. Yeah, Paul, where do you land on this this kind of you know, talking point? I, if I'm being honest, I kind of could see someone paying him a little bit more than what we're talking about, only because shooting is at such a premium in the NBA right now. And we see, like, I mean, of course, like, you know, he's not and, at, and, at, he's not at the level and, of, like, a Joe Harris or, or Davis Bertans, but we saw how much money those guys got. And I just think there's got to be a team that has some cap space that could really use some shoot. Like, I think if it's, like, I, I don't know, like, throw a team, like, I don't know, like, maybe, like, the Memphis Grizzlies, who are a young, up-and-coming team who could who could use some floor spacing and use some shooting, and maybe they look at a guy like a Furkan Korkmaz into and, and what we've been talking about. They see him as a guy that not only is a shooter, but maybe has some room to grow and do some other things. And I could see him being a really good fit next to a guy like a John Morant, um, Dylan Brooks, and, you know, some, and, you know, Jared Jackson – you know, name him, Xavier Tillman, like those guys, I could see him being a really good fit, you know, him and Desmond Bain coming off the bench and shooting off the wings. I mean, that that's a pretty dangerous combination that you can maybe look at in the future. So I could see a team maybe pay, paying him a, a little bit more money. Um, and so for me, like, uh, I, like Serge, like you said, I know he really, he's very happy here. Um, uh, uh, and that's very cool that, that, that he has found, you know, a, 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 Turkish markets and things like that in South Georgia. That's really cool that he's been sure. able to do that and make and make him feel comfortable here. Um, and so, if anything, that might be that you know that can't be discredited. Maybe he does. Maybe someone might offer him a little bit more money, but he's comfortable here. And if the Sixers offer him something reasonable, maybe he takes whatever a couple million less for that stability and for that comfortability um, that he feels in Philadelphia. But at the same time, I, I could see a team offering him more money and a bigger role, a more consistent role than perhaps what the Sixers could offer him. And then also I look at it as like, and this is no disrespect to Furcon, but the Sixers ha- drafted Isaiah Joe, who can do kind of, mm-hmm. you know, some of the same things, yep. but, you know, maybe doesn't have that potential off the dribble that Furcon has, but has that quick trigger, has that very willing trigger. Um, Isaiah Joe, to me, was already better defensively than I thought he was going to be as a rookie. Um, so he is a guy who could, they can maybe – slide into that role at, you know, at, at, on a cheaper contract and, and can maybe do some of the things that FERC can do. So I think just all those factors, uh, I don't, I'm not sure that it, it just is a fit for, for either the Sixers or FERC on. I think, I think he might find a better fit um, on the court and financially elsewhere. But yeah, I, I think, Serge, like you said, I, I think that comfortability in Philadelphia and that he does consider this home and that he likes a lot of people within the team and the organization. I don't think we can discredit that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And uh, I just wanted to confirm the Sixers do have his full bird rights. 
Um, so they, I mean, they can, if they want to retain him, they can. But as, as you mentioned, Paul, those are important points that maybe a team wants, maybe a team wants a six, seven, you know, above average shooter who holds on defensively, um, for a higher price point than what the Sixers are willing to offer. But, um, but you know, as the Ojo, you know, the as the Ojo portion is important. I talked with Tom West a couple of days ago or a few days ago about Isaiah Joe's rise and how that might, you know, allow them to look elsewhere for improvements. But, um, I, the, the point I really do want to kind of harp on just from a, a human perspective is, I mean, this is a player, Furcon, who was open about wanting to find a playing time elsewhere in his early in his second year. Um, and then again, talked, talked about it, you know, at the end of his second year that he requested a trade and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't granted. And now here he is, you know, he's, he's calling Philadelphia home, you know, sir, just saying that he's found kind of places where he can be a little more comfortable and feel like himself. Um, you know, Furcon and Matisse both talked about the fact that they have a really close relationship um, I think that was during the Wizards series. It was a really very wholesome moment, those two kind of talking about how close they've gotten. Um, this is a guy who's, you know, went from not really wanting to be in Philadelphia, maybe for both, you know, you know, on-court reasons and, and off-court reasons to a point where now he's calling it home. He's calling Gallup Matisse Thibel. He's been around for a year and a half. You know, one of his best, like his best friend, one of his best friends. Um, just a really cool rise, a guy who, you know, went through some, some struggles his first couple of years to now where he, you know, if things break right, he'd love to continue playing in Philadelphia. So um, I think we're all in fairly, you know, agreement about kind of what it might take for, for him to stay here. Um, but he's turned himself into a legit NBA player after really struggling his first couple of years. And I think there's still some room to grow. I mean, usually players kind of peak in their 26 to 29, you know, age range and for consoles a few years until he reaches that, that kind of you know range. So, um, Anything either of you want to hit on before we maybe shift to Danny Green and, and kind of Paul and I keep keep talking? And, and Serge, you're more than welcome. Can you, if you want to talk about Danny Green as well, you're more than welcome to stay on stage. But anything before we we shift to uh, to Danny uh, that you either of you want to you know reference about Furcon's season and impending free agency? Uh, yeah, just you know reiterating again that again he calls Philly home and um, you know must have resigned here I think for the most part but again he wants to test the uh, the waters in free agency so we're going to see uh, which team gives him the best deal in terms of um, the contract in terms of the years in terms of the salary and whatnot so uh, I mean, we'll see what happens within these next few weeks for sure yeah Paul anything to add or should we should we shift to uh, to Danny and get uh, dip our toes into the, the starting waters now <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm uh, let, let's. I, I, yeah, that's. I pretty much said everything about Furkan. I feel uh, like I guess fifty fifty on whether or not he comes back, depending on you know a lot of the factors we already discussed. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Danny Green, he will be the the first of our uh, our guys to discuss in the, in the starting five, and uh, and we won't discuss. We won't, we will not touch on how Danny Green made uh, had made uh, waves in the Sixers uh, fan base recently. I'm sure enough people are discussing that anyhow, but. Um, Danny, can't, you know, was the was the main headliner in the return for Al Horford? Um, was a draft day deal, I believe, in terms of when it was negotiated. Took a while for Danny to actually uh, get to get to Philadelphia. Um, I think I don't think I mean well, maybe four day, four or five days before the season when he first spoke with media, um, if I recall there. So, um, but I thought Danny had a really nice season. Struggled a little bit at the start of the year, which made sense. I mean, he he played for the Lakers last year. They won a title. He was you know, playing as late as anyone into the season was dealing with, dealing with, I think an Achilles injury in the bubble that, that hampered him a little bit. Um, but really kind of found his stride, especially after the all-star break um, was pretty dynamite. I thought he was moving better too defensively. Like I thought, I thought doc figured out his role a little better too. Um, there were still times where doc would put him on those, those off ball movers defensively where he was struggled. But for the most part, I thought he was better used as kind of a help defender in the wings, using his quick hands, his instincts as kind of, 
on those stunt recoveries, getting steals. Um, shot 40.5% from three, but after the All-Star break, he was even better. I'm going to pull up those splits here. Um, Post-All-Star break, he shot 43.4% from three, um, 61.7% true shooting. Um, you know, average about a steal and a half per game and just under a block per game. Um, Danny has some of the best hands for, for guard in the NBA. Um, I just thought he had a really nice year. It was a bummer that, you know, for him in the Sixers' sake that it, it culminated in the fact that he missed the last few games with the calf strain, unfortunately for him. But uh, I thought he had a really nice year and was, was clearly a really, really important player on the floor with his ability to relocate along the baseline there. Um, his quick trigger, you know, Paul was talking earlier about kind of a long-standing history of good shooters in the Sixers not having confident triggers. Um, Danny and Furcon probably have the most confident triggers on the team. Seth got them in the playoffs once he turned into his brother. Um, but um, Danny's had a really, really good year, and I thought you really kind of saw him found, find his sea legs the last three or four months before, unfortunately, he you know, had to miss um, the end of that season, the end of the season with, with the calf strain there. Um, but um, either one of you can take this. What did you make of Danny's, Danny's first year as a Sixer? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's important to point out, like you said, get, getting his sea legs, I think clearly – uh, the, the late postseason run and everything with the bubble affected him to start the season. He clearly wasn't where he wanted to be physically, um, which, you know, that's fair enough. I mean, you know, he's not the youngest guy anymore, and he's been through that a lot in the playoffs, and he's, he's put a lot of wear and tear on his body uh, from all the postseason runs and all the games he's played throughout the course of his career. Um, and he stayed relatively healthy throughout the most part of his career, so he's, he's had an opportunity to play a lot of games. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought once he really got settled in, uh, you really saw what he brings to the table. Defensively, like like you touched on, Jackson, it's not the same guy that he used to be as far as, you know, again, his lateral quickness and, and what he, and some of the guys he's able to guard. He struggled with, the, the, like you said, the off-moving off shooters. You also struggle with some of those smaller, quicker guards. But you saw, um, you know, with certain matchups, like I thought, like, you know, um, I, I know everyone points to that one Nets game against James Harden and, you know, Ben Simmons really – you know, taking over that assignment against Harden and really shutting him down. But even before that, um, Danny Green had done a pretty nice job on him. I, I think there's still guys who kind of rely, like a guy like a James Harden who relies on um, the defender to kind of make mistakes and relies on, you know, some, like his kind of strength and his upper body strength to create space. Danny does well against those kind of guys. Uh, that That's the kind of player that he still is a really tough matchup for, to your point, Jackson, too, really um, still quick hands, still, you know, the ability to read passing lanes and just understand tendencies and just, again, a, a very smart player, knows, you know, really does his homework and studies film and just ha- knows how to defend. And I, I think that's something that he really um, showed this year in Philadelphia. Offensively, yeah, that, that off-ball movement was so big. And, like, there is just something to guys – understanding spacing and where they're supposed to be on the floor. And Danny Green is one of the best in the NBA at that. And I thought that was huge for everybody on the Sixers. I thought that was huge clearly for Joel Embiid and what was, you know, an MVP caliber season. It was big for Tobias Harris and what was, you know, an all-star caliber season. I mean, even Ben Simmons at times, I I thought, you know, really helped him out. Just knowing where to be and finding those, those, those spaces on the floor. He was so good at it. And I don't know the stat, and I'm going to butcher it, uh, but I did have it in the story towards the end of the year. But, like, only a handful of Sixers in, in the history have hit, like, like 100 and whatever threes, and it also shot 40%. And Danny was, like, the sixth. And it was, like, J.J. <laughs> Redick, Dana Barros, Iverson, 
Uh, not Iverson. That's not. There's no way he shot forty percent. Um, but yeah, but the, but it was it was a good. It was a list of, of very good shooters, and uh, Kyle Korver, of course, um, was on that list. So it was it, it was you know a special season from him from a shooting standpoint. One of the best shooting seasons the Sixers have ever had. So um, yeah, I mean he was he was big for them offensively, and then of course, as much as we want to talk about from, uh, off the top, Jackson, we talked about him in the lock. We talked about Dwight Howard in the locker room. Danny Green, I thought, was so big for them off the court. And the best way I could put it is, when they needed a kick in the ass, he gave them a kick in the ass. And I, unfortunately, in that Hawk series, they needed one. And he was like, he could only do so much from that bench roll. He could only do so much as a guy in street clothes, like on the floor. Not to say that that would have changed the tide of the series, but I think it definitely hurt them to not have him, you know, telling guys what they needed to hear. Um, you know on the floor, in the huddle, all that. And I, I think that definitely made a difference. Um, he was just so big from a maturity standpoint. And the one game I always go back to, and I think it's just a microcosm of his impact. Uh, I don't remember what – it might have been in, like, February. They played the Knicks at MSG. Joel Embiid was out. And Ben Simmons was terrible. I think he turned the ball over, like, seven or eight times. Tobias had a horrible shooting night. And the Knicks did this to teams, right? I mean, throughout the course of the year in the regular season – they made a lot of teams look really bad offensively. And they forced overtime against the Sixers. It was like a 90s game. It was like 95-95 <laughs> at the end of regular That game was miserable. I remember. Yes. It, was late, it was late mid-March. I think it was there like it is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. March it was, 16th. It was bad. Ugly, ugly game. And it went to overtime. And I remember Doc Rivers saying everybody was down. You know, Ben Simmons was down. Tobias had everyone kind of had this look like, man, we're going to lose this game in overtime. And Danny Green kind of said, like, no, 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 no. Like, we're going to win this game. Like, everyone needs to get it together. And I remember he hit, like, a couple of ridiculous threes. Um, and they, they held it together enough. It's, it's a game that, in the past, they no doubt would have lost. With no Joel Embiid on the road in overtime, they would have crumbled. They would have lost. But Danny Green elevated them and said, no, we are not going to lose. <laughs> I, I, you know, we're going to win this game. And I just think... Uh, that's one moment, but I think there are plenty of other moments where he kind of had that impact mentally on them um, that he really elevated them. So, I mean, he was, to me, he was as big as anybody this season. He, he was a huge part of why they got the number one seed. And I think if he had played, he would have, if they would have advanced against the Hawks, if he had stayed healthy, I think he would have been a big part of the reason why they would have advanced. Yeah. Serge, anything you want to add about Danny's? I do want to say I misspoke. That was, they did play the Knicks on March 16th, but March 21st was the game that uh, that Paul is referring to here. Yeah, just to uh, just to Paul's point, I think you know uh, both of you mentioned Danny Green has sh- you know, shot the ball better this year than last year. The Lakers shot 40 percent this year, shot 36 percent last year. The Lakers, but mainly just off the court. Uh, to Paul's point, I thought Danny Green was just great with the young guys. I remember asking him frequently about Furkan, Shake, Matisse, and you know. Especially going into the playoffs, knowing that, you know, players like Matisse and Furkan don't have the most playoff experience. Um, I, I would ask, you know, Daniel, are you, are you confident in these guys? What are you telling them going into into the playoffs? And he would always tell me, well, you know, I always tell them to be be prepared. I give them, uh, you know, talks on what to do, how not, how not to be nervous, how to be in the moment, things of that nature. So I think just off the court, Daniel was great in terms of his leadership, in terms of being a veteran, um, being what he's experienced with the Spurs and the Raptors and the Lakers and so on and so forth. I thought he was great with us. You know, every time we asked him questions, it was really, um, you know, he would get into detail. He would they take, like, long minutes to respond to our questions just because he wanted to tell everything um, on his mind. So I thought he was great in that regard. 
So I just thought um, on the court he was great, but also off the court he was also a great leader in terms of his veteranship to the young guys, especially. Yeah, for sure. And I think I think one one way he I think I think he really helped Matisse's off ball movement this year. Um, yeah. Whether it was the cutting or just the relocating things like that, obviously Matisse is a different caliber of shooter, um, much different than, than Danny. But I think he helped that a lot. And you know, speaking to kind of the leadership too is, you know, late in the year the Sixers had all these games against a bunch of not very good teams. Whether they were they were missing guys or whether they were prioritizing youth development, and they were winning games, um, but they were they didn't look great. Like they were just fact matter they weren't playing well. Um, and I remember like someone asked Ben Simmons like kind of what he thought about that, and Ben was like, "Well, we're winning that. You know, that's kind of all that matters." And someone asked Danny about it. And Danny was like, "We're not playing well. Like this is not what a championship caliber team does. Like if we if we really want to reach our goals, like we got to play better." And so um, that's not me disparaging Ben or anything, um, but I mean, just just the difference there between kind of a guy who's been there, done that, and someone who and kind of a, a star and Ben Simmons who's still trying to you know reach, kind of attain, uh, aspire to the goals, the team goals that Danny's accomplished many times in his career. And, and so I, I just really thought that was you know, kind of emblematic of the way that Danny helped off the floor, like. He told it like it was. Like, yeah, they were winning, but they were squeaking by against, you know, a team like the Pelicans or, you know, the Pistons who were missing key guys, and, and that's not how you win a title. And so, of course, the Sixers, you know, fell short of that goal. Um, but I think Danny Danny was clearly a, a huge, huge reason that they had, you know, they had championship after racing this year, and I think he did a lot of good things on and off the floor to, to help them get there. But, um, yeah, but, the, you know, the fact of the matter is, um, you know, but I guess let me back there quickly is, uh, we'll talk about the pending free agency, but what I, I want to talk about, give him a grade for from each of us again, as we've done with all these players. For me, I'm going to give Danny, I want to say the B plus to A minus range. Where do, where do the two of you fall? Maybe that's maybe too, too harsh. I don't know. I don't know why I don't have a reason to, to give him a better grade, but where do the two of you <laughs> fall on, on that? Maybe we'll, we'll kick off with Paul and then Serge. We'll close this out on the, on the grading uh, section of, of Danny Green's season. So I, I'd give him an A just because, the reality is too, like, and I factor in the fact that he was traded. He, he was traded here basically as a throw-in to get off of Al Horford's contract. Uh, it just so happened that he also happened to be an extremely useful basketball player for this team. Um, because I think even when Maury makes that trade, does he expect Danny Green to do what he did to this extent? I don't think so. I, I really don't. Um, but he did, uh, and he was he was outstanding for them. Uh, yeah, I, I would I would lean towards an A. And just it's funny when we talk we're t- just to add more to the conversation about him off the floor and what he brings and that championship experience. I wrote an article like right right as the season was winding down, and they were about to clinch the one seed, and just kind of giving Danny Green his flowers and just you know talking about the season he had and what he brought. When you look at the Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons era, and you look at guys who have won championships that have come here, it was like the list is. It's kind of sad. Um, it was Tiago Splitter who was here for like eight games. It was uh, James Michael McAdoo who was, again, barely here and really didn't – like he won with the Warriors as like their 14th guy. Um, uh, Bellinelli, who, uh, you know, he did. He made a nice impact, but he was only here for half a season. Yeah. And there was one other guy that I can't place off the top of my head. But, yeah, that was it. Like that was the championship guys they've had. So to bring in a Danny Green – who has won three championships, who played with LeBron James, who played under Popovich and played with Tim Duncan and Tony Parker and Ginobili, um, who, you know, who played with all these really talented players. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that resonated more with this group 
than some of the other guys they brought in that had that quote-unquote championship experience. So to have a guy like that, I think everyone listened to him. You know, I, I think whether it was Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, whoever, um, all the young guys, like you already said, Serge, like he really did take the young guys under his wing, um, whether it was Matisse Thibel or Furkan or, or Tyrese Maxey, and um, he was a really good influence for them. So I think, yeah, when, when I factor in all that and then the fact that he was a – 40% plus shooter on a, on a, on a pretty high volume and just the spacing that he added to this team. Yeah. I, I have to give him an A. I just, Paul, I, I got to ask cause I'm um, my curiosity. You're mentioning guys like Bellinelli from like two, three years ago, that player you couldn't remember. Is it Aristotle either? So by chance. No, I'm saying I don't think he want to, I don't think he want to ring. I don't think Aristotle's want to ring. Oh, okay. Was, my fault. My fault. It's driving me no. It's it's it is. It's one more guy, and it's driving me nuts that I can't think of. Who I mean, Dwight. Was. Dwight. I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's Dwight, but Dwight does have a title. No, I was, thinking, I was thinking like coming coming into the like okay coming okay. into the season. Yeah, I I could even if while you guys are are talking more, I could look it up the article because I know I have it somewhere. Yeah, sir. Uh, do you want to give? I guess I think Paul's convinced me. I'll, I'll give an A. I don't know why I didn't. I don't know why I didn't give him an A. I, I didn't have a reason for it. I guess I guess I'm just one of those strict teachers apparently that. But Serge, where do you fall on the, the the gradient scale for Danny? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely in the uh, the A minus to A range. Uh, once again, Danny was great on the floor. Uh, talk about his defense, of course. He's definitely getting up there in age. Um, I think he turned 34 uh, about a few weeks ago. So I think in terms of his, you know, he's getting up there in age. So the quickness isn't there like it used to be. Um, but again, just his leadership off the floor was great. Um, like you said, Jackson, in terms of that answer Ben gave, nothing against Ben Simmons, but that answer Ben gave to us a few months ago, uh, you know, post game to the media. He said a few uh, words there, but then when we asked Danny a similar thing, he just went off and got really specific on what he was talking about. So, you know, because coming in, um, especially coming in after the bubble into playing with the Sixers, came in really um, honed into his position of being that veteran leadership, and I think he showed that uh, ten out of ten almost every single game. So, I'll definitely range between an A minus and an A for Danny Green. Yeah, for sure. I think that's reasonable. I guess the only reason maybe I go with an A minus is just because I think you know he was slow to start the year, and while he turned it on late, yeah, um, yeah. it was a little. You know, there were times where he, he wasn't his full self, but but either way, Danny had a tremendous season, and as Paul mentioned, he was you know he was the the return guy in the Al Horford deal, and I don't think I don't think anyone really expected him to be that that important value. But everyone knows. I mean, Danny Green's you know a well respected and a very good player for a long time, and is kind of a complimentary role player. But I don't think anyone expected him to. Shoot the best he shot from three, um, out, you know, outside of his 45% year in Toronto since 2015-16. So, uh, I've been kind of been on the downslope in terms of what he's been shot shooting from three. Um, uh, so he shot 45% um in Toronto a couple of years ago, and then other than that, his previously best year was 2014-15. Um, and so I think he kind of had a resurgence there. But um, Danny is a free agent, of course. Um, and I think it's pretty imperative they bring him back. They do have his bird rights. Um, I want to say. I want to say they, I don't know, I think they, I don't know which which version of his bird rights they have. I don't know if, I think it's, I want to say it's early bird rights. I don't know, like it's, it's definitely not full bird rights. Um, but the, they do have his bird rights, some former's bird rights there. Um, and I think it's pretty imperative to bring him back, like I said. I mean, just the shooting, the the off-ball movement around a guy like Joel Embiid, um, because we can talk about what this roster might look like next year. Um, but I think it's, obviously, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that Joel Embiid will be there and, a guy like Danny, who one makes a ton of really good entry passes because he has experience playing with good post players from from Tim Duncan, Lamarcus Aldridge, Anthony Davis, LeBron James, even Kawhi played in the post a little bit in Toronto. Um, that's key. Um, the off ball movement because you know defenses are going to collapse on Joel. 
Um, and just the shooting itself with the quick trigger is important. So um, I feel pretty comfortable giving Danny, like I don't know exactly what it is, but pretty much anything he'll get um, for the most part because they, they, they need him back. Like, I mean, if they have, if they want to, you know, be the one seed again or be a team that is, are, you know, vying for, you know, conference supremacy, obviously they, they fell short of that this year, but um, I think it's pretty key for them to maybe kind of take in the next step that next, you know, this next season. So um, where, do, where do Paul or Serge, do you guys kind of land on, on Danny's free agency here? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm with you that I, I, it, it seems pretty, pretty damn important to bring him back when you consider the role he played this year and how big he was both on and off the court, even if, you know, whatever, if your roster changes and maybe he, he becomes, uh, you know, he starts coming off the bench or whatever. I, I still think, he, he'll add a ton of value either in the starting lineup or off the bench. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, it, I don't know what the number's going to look like. I'm just – I'm very curious by his market, what it's going to look like. Um, will he – you know, what, what? how do other teams view him at this point in his career? Do they view this year – to your point, Jackson, do maybe some teams view this as kind of an outlier year because he hasn't shot the ball this well in, in, in you know, other than that Toronto season? Um, you know, where do they kind of see him? I'm very curious what his value is around the league. Then the other factor is that we kind of haven't mentioned is um, if they are looking for a perimeter shot creator, whether that's um, in to play with Ben Simmons or to replace Ben Simmons, uh, could Danny be part of a sign and trade? I think, you know, that's a possibility too. So um, it, it's going to be a very interesting off season for Danny green. I think it is going to depend on Ben Simmons and where that kind of shakes out and all that. So, um, very curious, but I do want to add that I did find the fourth player. So Tiago splitter, eight games, uh, in Philadelphia, James, Michael <laughs> McAdoo, three games in Philadelphia, Marco Bellinelli, 28 regular season games, 10 playoff games. The last guy, Corey Brewer, uh, Ooh. seven games, <laughs> oh, yes. the, the most remember, the most memorable two 10 day yep. contracts in uh, recent memory. So, yeah, so Corey Brewer was the fourth guy on that list. But, yeah, that just, again, just reiterates, you know, Danny Green obviously played an entire season here um, so yeah, and won three championships and all that. So he adds that to the table. So, to me, yeah, I, I view it as, as very, very important to bring him back. And I, I think they should absolutely look to bring him back. But I think the, the market for him is going to, is going to matter. And then also what they do with Ben Simmons and how they go about building that, this roster beyond that um, is also going to be a big factor. Yeah, for sure. Serge, anything you want to add about Danny's free agency here as the Sixers approach it and he approaches it? Yeah. To Paul's point, I think it's essential that, and Jackson to your point as well, that, that the Sixers uh, do want to bring him back. Uh, I'm pretty sure you guys remember, I was actually looking it up um, like a few minutes ago where he said, that he, uh, he, he was talking to us and he was you know, basically talking about what him and Doc spoke about post game after the season was over. And he said, Oh, you'll be back. You ain't going anywhere. So uh, um, <laughs> that was, that was pretty funny. So it kind of shows where, where Doc sees Danny Green in terms of, um, in terms of next season and where he wants him. So, but again, maybe Danny will go elsewhere. Maybe he'll want to join on a, like a, a championship caliber team to get back to the finals. Um, a guy that's so used to the finals probably wants to be there again. Um, again, what happens to Ben Simmons is also essential as well. So, um, yeah, so I think the, uh, the Sixers should bring him back. Uh, but of course, I'm not sure where Danny's head is in terms of, um, of him wanting to go back to the finals. Do you think the Sixers can get there next season? A uh, bunch of questions that's going to be answered with, within these next few months. So uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, Dan- Danny's last deal, you know, coming off a championship year with Toronto, shooting 45% from three. I uh, got two years, 30 million. I, I imagine he'll get 
less than that just because he had a lesser year, um, last, lesser, last couple of years, even though he was quite good again this year. Um, and so they, I believe, and I, I'm not positive, but they have his early bird rights, which I think. And so that means they can either give him 175% of his previous salary or 104.5% of the league average salary, whichever is higher. Um, I believe the former is higher for them, which means the Sixers can give him like, uh, like 22 and a half million. Uh, he's not going to get that, but, um, point being is the Sixers can basically match any offer he gets, um, and keep him in town if they wish. Um, and so, uh, I think he'll be around next year if the Sixers want him to. Um, let me double check that math here quickly. Um, I'm pretty good at mental math, but I'm not perfect. So I don't want to, I don't want to mislead anyone. Uh, Better you than 15, me doing math. <laughs> 15 so. times 1.75. 26.2. So if the Sixers want to give Danny Green 26 million. Uh, they, they can do that. They will not do that um, because as good as Danny Green is, uh, they, it's just not worthwhile. But um, point being here is that Danny Green is really integral to what the Sixers did last year, and they should try to retain him when they can. They can retain him if they wish. So um, Danny had an awesome year. Uh, just, I just really think he was really important what they did. The Sixers. You know, I think at this point, the Sixers are pretty well-stocked, or they were well-stocked on shooting um, last year. Now the next step is finding a perimeter creator and more, more plus passers in the half court, but um, that shouldn't detract from, you know, retaining Danny. Um, really appreciate the two of you you joining me on here today. Uh, appreciate everyone who's listening. Appreciate anyone who listens after the fact as a podcast. Um, before, before we hop off for the afternoon, anything either of you want to plug, where can people find your work, where can they follow you? Um, Paul, we'll start with you, and then we'll close out with Serge. Uh, Give yourself a little little shout out here. <laughs> yeah, uh, for sure. So um, I'm currently uh, working um, at 97 or 97.3 ESPN uh, in South Jersey. Uh, you can find my stuff on the website. Admittedly, I have not been as active as I would like to be, uh, <laughs> simply because, uh, as I mentioned off the top, just a lot going on in, uh, in in my world right now outside of covering basketball. So just a lot happening, and then. Um, also, yeah, the, the coming in for a landing podcast again, same deal. I just it's just been very difficult um, to really settle down, settle in. But I, I will definitely be active on those things. Um, and you can always, I'm always uh, on Twitter. I uh, way too much according to my girlfriend. So um, you can always find me on there at, at Paul Hudrick, and I'm always willing to talk Sixers. Um, I generally, if there's something Sixers going on, I will have a comment about it and some thoughts about it. And uh, I enjoy interacting with 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 people and followers and that want to have a discussion of any kind. So yeah, you can find me on Twitter as well. Yeah. You can find me on Twitter at Serge Kumas. Um, I'm a, I usually uh, report and write for trend basket. I do a bunch of other freelancing stuff for different outlets. Uh, trend baskets based in Europe. Um, so I, I follow mainly European prospects. Uh, I'll be doing some NBA draft stuff for a European prospect uh, out of Turkey. He's uh, set out to be a lottery pick. So I'll be doing some stuff on him within this week and the following week before the draft uh, gets underway. But always love talking to fans, uh, followers, you know, um, whether on Twitter or, or Instagram and things of that nature. Uh, so definitely reach out to me on Twitter, which is at Serge Kumas, and definitely at, on Instagram, which is also at Serge Kumas. Awesome. Uh, thanks again for, for both of you for joining me. This was, this was a great episode. Um, hope it was insightful for everyone who listened uh, to the stream or as a, as a podcast. Um, I'll be back next week to continue uh, this the series of assessing the Sixers. We'll get into the get into the uh, the, the big four of uh, Seth Curry, Tobias Harris, Joel Embiid, and uh, and Ben Simmons. So uh, I'll be back next week. But in the meantime, stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe. I will talk to all of you again soon.